up to uh, Exodus chapter 20. If I haven't had the pleasure yet, my name is Tom, and I'm a, a preaching elder here at Hope. And, and you've caught us, if you're visiting or uh, looking for a church, you've caught us just about smack bang in the middle of our series going through Exodus. And, and we've learned of God's redemption of the Israelites out of the house of slavery, where they had been for multiple hundred years since, uh, since Jacob and his, his descendants and grandchildren moved to Egypt during a famine. And we've seen him redeem them out of slavery through the, through the horrendous plagues that were striked down upon the gods and the rulers of Egypt. And then we saw him, uh, him rescue them through the Red Sea and swallow up the Egyptians uh, and the army. We, we've seen him bless them and sustain them miraculously and lovingly throughout the desert so far. And now what we find is that they have arrived to Mount Sinai, the, the, the Mount of God. And there God has spent three days talking to Moses and sending him back down to the people that they might sacrifice, they might wash, they might, they might refrain from anything that would be distracting so that they can ready themselves for the coming arrival of their covenant God on the Mount Sinai. And we've seen in Exodus 19 the arrival of God and the, the fearful, trembling, shaking voice of God that as he descended on the mountain in flame and with lightnings and with a thick smoke that was just billowing up like a kiln and an earthquake that was going, God spoke to the people and what he spoke to them is now, is now uh, written down for us in Exodus chapter 20. Look at, look at what Exodus chapter 20 says in verse 1 there. We find that it says, it will say, what else can I say as I'm finding my page? We will see that it is written thusly in the book before us in the page of Exodus chapter 20. Here it is. Thus saith the Lord. Listen. Come on, get your page. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. He reminds them who he is. We remember that as we were learning about the covenant relationship that God makes with this nation Israel, he started this covenant relationship back when, when their great-great-granddaddy Abraham was a pagan. He took Abraham and promised him, I promise you, I'll make you a nation, and with that nation, I'll give so many blessings. I'll enter into relationship. I'll, I'll give them a land. I'll send the savior of the world through their blood. It'll be amazing. And every family on earth will be blessed because of you. Now that covenant, we, we, we remember and we recognize, sort of took the form of the ancient uh, formula or contract sort of template of, of covenants. And, and so what they would do is they would make a covenant with each other saying, here's who I am, here's who you are, here's our history, here's what you owe me, and here's what I command and I require of you to have my covenant benefits. And here's what we see God doing the same thing again. He says to the Israelites, who he is, I'm Yahweh, I'm your God, I delivered you out of Egypt, and then he gives them his laws as a requirement for existing in his covenant. So far, what we have seen is, this, is, is about half of God's redemption. In the story so far of the book of Exodus, we have seen half of God's redemption. The first act of his redemption has been in, in that he saved them out of Egypt's slavery. He saved them out of being ruled by a tyrant. He saved them out of destructive, deadly, horrible laws. But we're now entering into the second act of Exodus, the second part of God's redemption, which is where he now saves them from lawlessness. 
He saved them from the tyranny of a horrible law. And now he's saving them from, from, from anarchy, from chaos, from lawlessness, or what theologians call antinomianism, which is anti, meaning against, nomos is that Greek word meaning law, and so antinomianism is that belief that, that we're God's people. We don't need law, we just have love. We don't need laws, we just do what we want because God loves us, he forgave us, we're full of grace, and he's saving them from that. He is saving them from lawlessness by giving him his glorious law. Now, of course, we approach this text as Christians. And we, too, need to see God's salvation, God's rich and full redemption, come to us in two parts, at least. There's, there's many more facets. But if we can look at it through the lens of Exodus this morning, we recognize that God first saves us from the dominion and the overruling power and condemnation of the law. God does this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, killing him in our place for all of our transgressions, raising him from the grave, and putting him into heaven, where he now, as we just heard, represents and mediates every single person that comes to him by faith. That is to say, in Paul's language in the New Testament, everybody who places their faith in Jesus says, I trust in his salvation. I don't want to meet God on my own terms. I want to be mediated to God through Jesus. Anybody who does that is raised up out of the death of sin, is freed from the dominion and the chains of sin so that we are now, we are now forgiven but also able to live new lives. We are a spiritually resurrected people. We are born again. We have new life. New hearts, all of this language. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. But the second act of God's redemption in our lives is that he then progressively, so you're saved from sin's curse, you are saved from sin's dominion over you and power to make you sin constantly. You're saved from spiritual death the moment God re recreates your heart and you place your faith in Jesus. But it is then a slow progress, slower than we want, a slow and painful progress, a lifelong progress. It is a lifelong progress and process whereby God then saves us from the habits of sin, from the, from the ideologies of sin, from the principles and the, and, and the behaviors and the, and the influence of sin in our life. And this we call sanctification, that God makes us holy by his spirit dwelling in us and with us and using the word of God and making us obey his law from the heart. This is our joy as Christians. The, the children of God always are at their happiest when they are at their holiest. It's always the case. And so we come to the, the Ten Commandments here as those that God has saved out of our sin in Jesus. We're, we're in a better place than the Israelites. We have a better covenant, a better mediator, a better savior, and everybody that Jesus leads out of the slavery of sin will make it to heaven. Not so with Israel. Not so with Moses. He wasn't a good enough mediator. He didn't save, get everybody to heaven that came out of Egypt. That just, that just wasn't his mediatorial role. Jesus leads us to heaven. <clears throat> so we're going to be asking three things. As the next 10 weeks, we take the Ten Commandments, one per week, and we're going to study uh, 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 what, what God says. We're going to be asking three questions. Because in the previous weeks, what we've established is that the law reveals God to us. It's a good thing. Don't hate God's law. It represents God. We're going to ask, how does this specific commandment, how does it reveal God to us? What does it tell us about God? What does it show us about his nature, person, and relationship? Then we're going to ask, 
What is the commandment that this law represents? What, 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 what does this require of us as a binding commandment? Where is the law? And then we're going to ask, what is the gospel? We will not leave this room. I will not get down off this stage after exegeting the word of God. I will not leave you in the horrible position of learning what God requires, the standard by which God judges, and then fail to point us to Jesus, who is our only savior from God's judgment. We will do that. We will ask, how does this law reveal God to us? Where is the law and commandment in this law? What does it require? And then thirdly, where is the gospel? Show us Jesus. How does it point us to Jesus to be saved? So let me now read again chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. While all the Israelites were gathered at the bottom of the mountain on fire and lightnings and thunder and earthquake, God's booming voice rattled the world, and they heard these. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. May God bless the reading of his first commandment in our midst this morning. First of all, we need to ask, what does this reveal to us about God? And very obviously, foundationally, we need to assert that God, who speaks this word, is the only one true and living God. There is no other God. There is no one else that, 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 that is worthy of such a name. Now, this sort of exclusivity in humans... This, this kind of, it's only me, don't look at anybody else, focus on me, I want all of your attention, all of your adoration, that kind of what we call jealousy is usually grounded and rooted in insecurity. Because of course, maybe as a, as a suitor of a beautiful woman and you want to win her hand, but there's other guys, or, or maybe as a, uh, as, a, as, a team, as a sports team mate that, that you, might, you might want all of the attention for yourself because here's, here's the insecurity that exclusivity and selfishness is rooted in, is that if you look at other people, you, you might see things better than what I can give. You might find other people more uh, better at it or, or better uh, 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 men to marry or whatever it may be, the situation. If you look at others, you might see what I lack and you might see something better than me. And so that exclusivity, that selfishness is, is grounded in insecurity based on faults. In God, his commandment of absolute exclusivity is not grounded in insecurity. It is grounded in the world's reality. He is simply saying, there is no other gods. So every time you have another god, you're committing a deep, deep lie to yourself and the universe. There is no other god, so you shall have none other but me. There is nothing, God could also say, there is not even conceptually possible a god better than me. So don't, don't imagine one. Don't have one. Don't worship one. God's command here for exclusivity, radical exclusivity, is grounded in reality. He is, he is, he is the only eternal, infinite being worthy of such a name as God. Now, some, some scholars look at this and they go, hey, hey, this command, 
This command itself doesn't say there are no other gods. He, he in fact, is just commanding, don't have any other gods except for me. And in fact, even by commanding that, isn't he assuming that there is other gods? And so these theologians say, see, see this Yahweh, he's no different than any of the other gods in all of the other ancient worlds in the Near East. You know what they do? They say, you can have others. There are others, but none in front of me. If you're in my nation, if you're my people, if you get my blessings, I have to be your number one. That's all he's saying. And so they, 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 they impose this idea of ancient Near East polytheism onto God, and, and they say this doesn't teach monotheism at all. Of course, not only is that wrong in the direct and immediate context, it is also wrong in the whole flow of the context of Exodus that we have read so far. It is true, this command doesn't say there are no other gods, but it is grounded and rooted in the assumption that the Israelites have learned that there is no other god. Back in Exodus chapter 9, God was speaking in the, in the context of the plagues. He was destroying and just wiping out and KOing, uppercutting and right-hooking all of the Egyptian gods. And he says it was for this reason. Uh, he says, for this time I will send all my plagues on you so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In verse 29 he goes on to say, I am doing this so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. So by, by the time we come to Mount Sinai and we hear God say, don't have any other gods before me, it is grounded in the displayed manifest reality that nothing can stand up to God because there really is nothing else on his category. And if his category is God, there is no other gods. There are so-called gods. There are demons that, that teach humans to worship them. There are, there are ideological and idiotic ideological uh, uh, conceptions that we come up with and, and try and name them God, but God's commandment, do not worship them, is grounded in the reality that there is only one God. Here, Isaiah 45, where God goes on in the future to speak through his prophet and say this, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. That is a tremendously condemning statement of everybody that worships a God other than Yahweh. They have no knowledge. How much knowledge? None. Because even the true things they know, they believe are true because this wooden stick God made it to be true, which makes it false. Even one plus one, they believe wrongly. They have no true grounded knowledge for one plus one equals two, or that the sky is blue. They can't even, even ground that in reality because underneath it lies their idiotic assumption, this wooden stick god made out of toothpicks and the same stuff we constructed our toilet with, that, that, that thing made it to be true. God says, bigotedly, intolerantly, very narrow-mindedly, they have no knowledge, who go around worshipping wooden idols. And they keep on praying to a God that cannot save. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none besides me. Turn to me, God says. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God's commandment to worship him alone is not grounded in insecurity and selfishness. It is grounded, this commandment, in the reality he is the only God, 
But the reason he commands it is because of his, his, his eternal, wonderful, gracious love to us. He does not want the humans, the, the people that he has made to go about dying in folly and unbelief as they, as they worship false gods that can't save, that tyrannize, that make your life horrible and take you, your soul, to an eternal hell. He commands, don't go where they lead. All the ends of the earth, the Buddhists, the Hindus, Islam, wherever you find yourself, whatever, whatever idolatry you find yourself under, come to me. I am the only God that made you. I am the only God that can save you. I am the only God. This is what Yahweh says. It's such a joy going on mission trips. And we go, we've been to, been to Nepal, we've been to uh, Burma. I remember being in Myanmar and, and we were teaching, uh, we, were, we were evangelizing and there was this, this group of half Buddhist priests and half monks, and, and there was another couple of uh, just sort you know Buddhist adherents, very nominal types, and these these young men, and, and we were debating, going back and forth, and then and then we just decided to to play the Isaiah card, and we stopped being nice, and we were sick of being friendly, and we were sick of trying to trying to convince them that there's there's goodness in the gospel, and here's what, and we just went, you know what, this is it. You have you have no knowledge. Your your religion is is idiotic, and and here's let's just throw down. Let's just throw down, start a, make a little circle here. Let's just throw down right here. I, I, I challenge them, give us one, one, I only asked one, all, all 10 of you standing here, give us one example of any time you have ever prayed anything to your God when you were in need and they came through for you. Let them think, let them wonder, scratch their heads. And it seemed, it seemed as, a, as an irrelevant question for a worshiper. It seemed irrelevant that, that their gods that they worshipped or the, or the beings that they tried to, to, uh, uh, to bring upon them, it seemed irrelevant that they didn't help them. Is that, is that the job of gods? <laughs> of course it is. Or the one true God who loves to give, who loves to listen, who loves to be gracious and merciful. And, and we stood back and asked what their philosophy, their religion, their gods, if we can call it that, have ever done for them. And, and they did nothing. And, and we carried on with this Isaiah type uh, evangelism. We grabbed a water bottle, put it down in front of them. But there you go. You, you know, people go and scrape gold out of the dirt and and put, put rock together to make your gods and paint them with the yellow metal gold and put them in, in that little uh, thing that you worship and you bow down to it. Right? You know that's the process? And you go, yeah, 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 okay, cool. Well, well, somebody else with a machine got some, some oil, refined stuff. They made plastic. They put water in it. Why don't you just worship this right there in the street, sitting in the dirt? They go, that would be so silly. Says, why? Why would that be any more silly than what you worship? Remember, we told them, we said, can I, hands up, any of you, obviously through a translator, says, have any of you ever drunk from a water bottle and been quenched in your thirst and need? All the hands went up. Said, it seems manifest to me that this little plastic bottle has done more for you than any of your gods. Worship it. How, how idiotic and, and tragic and out of touch with reality, idolatry, the worship of any other god is. Is it intolerant, bigoted, narrow-minded, and offensive? You bet. Is it gracious, merciful, loving that God reminds us of this, commands us to know there is only one God, and calls us to himself? Absolutely. This first command is not just the first, but it is also the foundation. God is saying here, I'm the only God, have no other gods, and then listen to my commandments. Do you see the connection between God and law? 
If there is only one God, there's only one authority. We want other gods. We want other gods to be tolerated. We want other gods to be just as equally as promoted. Is always a Trojan horse for, we want other laws to matter. We want there to be other standards. This Christian God of the Bible is just far too narrow. We want other gods, other religions, other ways of worship that is always a Trojan horse for we want to be able to do things God doesn't allow, which is just the age-old desire. We want to be able to do what we want. God is sole God. Therefore, only his law is law. There's no other standards. Don't walk out of Yahweh's presence and try, and try and flip through the phone book and find a better God with better laws. They don't exist. There is only one standard we will be judged by. There is only one God that will judge us because there is only one God that created us because there is only one God that exists. Are you, are you getting the theme here of this first commandment? But that also means that in this life, there is no other law or standard. What this reveals is one God one law giver. And this became a perennial problem for Israel. They, they, they almost, up until the return from the exile, it, it took the exiles, Israel, out of their nation. Their young men killed, their young women sold off into slavery, their, 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 their kings butchered, their temple burned down, their city in rubble. It took that for them to learn this lesson of idolatry. They, they come back and, and they, they, they are actually staunch. They are, they, they, they are obedient and they, they fight the Greeks and they fight Antiochus and they, and they become very defensive against the Romans when the Romans come around because they've learned the lesson. Idolatry will lead to exile. But it was always a problem for them. We see in, in uh, uh, Psalm 78, a, a beautiful psalm. It recounts God's gracious history with Israel. But this one element... One stanza that it speaks about Israel coming out of Egypt. God says, they tested and rebelled against the most high God. It says, he brought them into the land, he gave them a nation, but they turned away and acted treacherously. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. This became a, a constant problem for Israel, that, that God had taken the Israelites out of Egypt, but as we've said, it would, took a long it would take a long time for Egypt to be taken out of Israel. They were still des uh, desirous of, they were still tempted to worship false gods. This is what God says in Ezekiel chapter 20. He's speaking through the prophet to the nation of Israel, hundreds of years in the future, as they are committing idolatry, as they are sinning and worshiping other gods as they are doing horrible things in worship to those gods. Ezekiel says this. Thus says the Lord, I said to them, cast away the detestable things that your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on. What a word picture. The detestable things their eyes feasted on. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. God was so serious about this first commandment. It's not just the first in importance. It is the, not just the first in order. It is the first in, in the sense that it is foundational to everything else. His laws... Whatever he says, 
is binding because he is the one true God. Now, I, I warn you now, I, I just prepare you to be offended. Well, this has obviously all been very friendly and nice and kind and God's very open-minded, but this, this will offend us. In Deuteronomy 13, God gives an applied commandment of this first law. He says, I've told you, don't worship any other gods beside me. In Deuteronomy 13, verse 6 and following, he instructs them what this needs to look like in real, de- in real time. If your brother, God says, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, the people you love the most in this world, those people, if they entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor our fathers have known, God's commandment is, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal them, but you shall kill them. Your hand, your hand, shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all of the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He quotes the first commandment. He says, your most loving family member, your best friend, who is as your own soul, your, your, your old schoolmate, your neighbor, your, your business partner, your child, your mother says to you, Let us go and worship other gods. You grab them. You beat them. You take them to the elders. You bear witness against them. On the witness, they then stone them by by tying them somewhere or pushing them somewhere. Everybody takes a rock. You be the first to strike them in the temple. Everybody else buries that body with their stones. Is idolatry a serious thing to Yahweh? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the first, the most foundational of his commandments. It reveals to us that there is only one God, only one Lord giver, and all those who he has created must not worship anybody else. If you're a a Jew here this morning not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are commanded to turn away from your false uh, 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 singular person view of God and embrace the Trinitarian true God of the Bible that spoke through Moses. If you're Islamic, you are commanded to turn away from your false conception of God and embrace the true Yahweh who spoke through Moses, all of the other prophets, and appeared in Jesus Christ who is God. If you worship or are tempted by any other kind of polytheism, whether it's the, 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 the Norse mythology or the Greeks or the animism of your ancestors, whatever it may be, the worship and giving over of glory to any other divine being other than Yahweh revealed in the 66 books of Scripture is idolatry. God commands it to be done, uh, to be done away with. It is sin of the highest order because it both denies the most basic foundational truth that there is only one God and it refuses to give him worship, giving it instead to other people. 
Syncretism is the other thing that the Jews were tempted with. And my goodness, evangelical Christianity is tempted with this. Syncretism, meaning, meaning the mixing of two different kind of ideologies. That we love Jesus and he's the best teacher. And we just love Gandhi. My goodness, he had some good things to say. I've been in churches with, with Gandhi quotes on the bulletin. I ripped it up into a cross shape and left it on the seat. I don't know whether that was wise, but it helped me during the sermon that was preached that day. It was a bit of a stress relief. I've been in churches and, and they'll tip their hat to Islam and, and they'll be very, uh, very nice to sort of new age Christianity. There is all of these ridiculous, idiotic, if, if God is to be true, then foolish, no knowledge, to quote Isaiah, no knowledge approaches to worshipping God. If we mingle him with any others, then we are not worshipping God. As soon as there is a plus anything on who you worship next to Yahweh, you're not worshipping Yahweh. This is the first rule of your worship to me, that you don't care if they call you a bigot, that you don't care if they think you're narrow-minded, that they don't care, that you don't care if the whole world around you says literally everybody else can get along with relativism and pluralism and secularism. No one else is saying that everybody else has to give up their God or they're going to hell. Calm down, they might tell us. And we say, that just doesn't fly with God. You may hate me, but I'm not walking up to this God, the consuming fire, and asking him to edit his commandments. He was pretty serious about this. We must not care what others say. We care what God says. If we care what others say, they are the God that speaks to us. So, syncretism is out for Christians. No mingling of the biblical religion with anything else. This reveals there's one God, one judge. He despises idolatry and hates syncretism. What of the Lord? What, is this, what does this command for us today? What this commands for us is, is that God is the one to whom we give glorious, joyful adoration and praise. Listen to what the, the Westminster uh, uh, Confession, uh, uh, Catechism says to the question, what is commanded in the first commandment? It says, the first commandment requires us to know and recognize God as the only true God, we've done that, and to worship and glorify him as such. To worship and glorify. If he is the only God, then we are to give to him our joyful worship. Why? There's, there's at least three reasons or, or categories of reasons that the, the theologians sort of hand down. And, and it's pretty biblical and it's pretty, pretty clear and obvious, but they say there's, there's creation, there's mercy, and there's redemption. We give to God, Yahweh, in the mornings, around our breakfast tables, in our own prayers, in the congregation. It should be happening in public. It should be happening everywhere. We give God glory because he is a praiseworthy creator. Oh, the world just screams God's majesty, his glory, and his wisdom. Isn't, isn't 21st century scientific age man just in a horrible predicament that no one has known more of God's glorious creative majesty than modern scientists, and no one is finger in ears screaming that there's no God that made it louder than modern scientists. Don't be that guy. Give to God glory for his majestic creation. Secondly, we give God glory in worship. This, this commandment tells us that we must be giving him worship also for his mercy. The, the, we're, all, we're all people and we're all beings that are finite and we're in his created world before his eyes 
and we sin daily. The fact that God does not swallow up every generation in a a flood like Noah or sweep us all into hell the moment we start breathing is an act and is a continual flooding of God's mercy. We give him glory for that. But most most importantly and most powerfully, we give God praise and glory because of the redemption. This, This is, in fact, how God starts out the Ten Commandments. He says he is God, but more than that, not just that he's Yahweh, but that he's Yahweh, their God, who saved them out of, out, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the most important, the most frequent motivation we see in the New Testament as to why we praise and glorify Jesus, why we praise and glorify Yahweh, is because in his mercy and in his grace, he has entered into our nature, he entered into our history 2,000 years ago, paid for our sin and all of the, the debt that our guilt had accrued before God, and raised from the dead so that everybody of any past religion of any idolatry, of any, of, any, of any idol worship or any other philosophy that you come from, any nation, whatever it may be, you come to God by faith in Jesus, you are accepted in his blood. You are accepted in his standing. God looks at you with as much favor, pleasure, love, acceptance with which he looks at his own son, Jesus Christ. That redemption demands that we praise him. But it also demands that we give him trust. As we New Covenant Christians, we read this Ten Commandments and we we get to the first one, have no other gods beside him. Thomas Watson says, whatever it is that we trust more than God becomes to us a functional God. In his words, Have no other gods before me surely includes the prohibition of trusting anything before him. To trust anything more than God is to make it a God. To trust. Friends, friends, you may not be going home to shrines and to pictures and to the mosque or to the temple on your way home. That may not be happening. Praise God. But we are not exempt, every one of us, from worshipping false gods. Uh, Are you trusting in something? relying on, hoping in, feeling safe because you have something more than God? Do you desire, we could say, to desire anything more than God is to make it a God? What do you yearn for? Well, late at night, you're sitting on your pillow. Early in the morning, you, 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 you wake up. What's the first thing in your heart, the last thing on your mind that you wish you had? What is your desire, your deepest desire that you yearn for and dream about to desire something more than God is to make that thing a God? What do you love? Thomas Watson goes on to say, what do you delight in, take pleasure from, enjoy, get excited when you think about? What do you do that more than you do about the one true living God? What do you take comfort in, feel secure when you have What do you feel like washes away your sin and your guilt and and your stresses and your anxieties? You get home, horrible day, that one thing you can't do without, that one thing you can't hit the pillow without, that thing, that is a God to you. It might be sex or pleasure or substances or food or wealth or success. You may have it or you may not have it. That doesn't stop it from being a God to you. 
Philippians 3 speaks of, uh, Paul speaks of, of, of people of whom their God is their belly. Some of us have really big gods. <clears throat> I'm, I'm reading here. Habakkuk 1 says, their own might is their God. And so he condemns those who, either physical or, or, or wealth or, or any other kind of thing, security in our own might may, be beca- may become our God. And, and this also commands us to love God entirely. Not just trust, not just to worship above any other thing, but also it goes so deep as Jesus says in response to the question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. Saying this is how you should read the first commandment. This is how you should read the foundation of all commandments. Love God with everything that you are perfectly at every moment. How do you do with that? Is your heart entirely encased and, and flowing with, with love to God above everything else? Is, is your mind thinking about every thought that you have is honorable to God as much as it possibly could be? Is this how we love? Is this how we worship God, and if not, we fall beneath the standards of this first commandment, and it's just the first one out of ten. So we are demanded to ask the question, where is the gospel? If this law comes to us and says, this is the standard, this is the rule, this is the benchmark by which you must meet in order to approach God, this is how perfect you must be in order to approach the perfect God. If that is the standard, then we all fall underneath it, and none of us can approach God on the basis of our obedience to this command. So how, do we, how does the gospel help us? The reality is that the New Testament gives to us a deeper revelation, not a contradictory re- revelation, but a deeper revelation of the very nature of the God who spoke this commandment. Where the Old, Old Testament, there are clues and, and there are hints, but really, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God in whom subsist three eternal equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, not three gods, one God in essence, but three persons relating to each other in such a way that, that distinguish them as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This was not shown in clarity in the Old Testament. This is shown to us clearly in the New Testament, such that we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, and Paul quotes Old Testament verses, and he says this, of all the people worshipping their idols in the temples and the mosques and the whatever else, he says, though there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet... For us, we know there is only one God, the Father from whom all things exist and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Do you see the the mystery in what he said? He says there's only one God, the Father and Jesus. Wait, one or more than one? Yes. Yep, exactly. You got it right. No, no, no. Is there more than one or is there one? 
Correct. You've got the answer. There is one in being, one essence called God. And within that, exhausting all of the attributes that make them God, there is Father, who relates to a, a, a person called the Son, who relate also together to a person called the Spirit. So that Father, Son, and Spirit are revealed to us as this one God. Jesus Christ, our Lord, made revealed to us, manifest to us, clarified to us who this God that we worship is. On the transfiguration, God commended Jesus to us as his son. Matthew says that Jesus led up three of his disciples up a high mountain by themselves. Does this remind you of the Exodus scene? Does this remind you of Sinai? Moses going up to hear from God. The rest seeing the glorious shining fire of God. <clears throat> he led them up a high, high mountain. And he was changed before them, transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as pure light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, that, that's Sinai language again, of a cloud comes down, it's shining from inside with all of the light of the glory of God coming from the face of Jesus. And the voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. See this amazing picture? Jesus is being both Moses and God. The mountain shone with God's presence in Sinai and Moses went up to it. God spoke to him. With Jesus, he is up on the mountain and he is the shining glory of God. And he's Moses who is testified by God to be the spokesman and the teacher for the people of God. Jesus is the radiance and glory and true nature of God. He's better than Moses. <clears throat> Jesus is the shining glory of God. But we see this so powerfully and beautifully put in John chapter 1 verse 16 where where John says to us, in fact, we'll start with verse 18. Verse 18, John says to us, there, uh, actually, he says, <clears throat> no one, no one has ever seen God. That is an absolute negative. There's not a person that has ever existed in human nature that has ever seen God. God cannot lie. Amen. God cannot be incorrect. God does not make mistakes, especially in the same sentence. So whatever comes next cannot be a contradiction of what we just read. There's only one God, and no one has ever seen him. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. My goodness. The mystery of the Trinity in this simple sentence. There's only one God. No one's ever seen him. Except for him who is yet distinct from him. There is one God. No one's ever seen him. But the Son, who is the only true God, makes Father known to us. Jesus is explicitly, clearly, powerfully in the New Testament shown to us as God, not demigod, not semi-god, not one degree removed from the Father God. True, absolute, 
eternal God, exhausting all of the divine attributes and yet made known to us. Listen to what John said just before he said that. John says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Sinner, if you're here and you need grace and you feel like you might just use up all the grace that God has to give, there's good news. He's got more grace. You need grace, and he has grace to give you, grace that is piled up on grace, served to you in a triple-decker stack, and there's millions more of them to be served up. There is more grace that God has in Jesus Christ for you than you can ever break or use up by your sinning. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This God who speaks to all of us from Sinai and his voice thunders and it booms and it condemns you because he demands that if you have loved, looked at, adored, trusted, served with your money, time and effort, anything for a moment more than you have done so towards the one true God, then you are an idolater. You have committed idolatry. You have worshipped something made out of dust and molecules instead of the God that spoke everything into existence. It's foolishness. It's tragedy. It's self-destruction on an eternal scale. It is a sin against the one being who deserves never to have anything but your pure and perfect obedience. But God has revealed himself that same God, the thundering God of Sinai, has then stepped down on another mountain, Mount Zion. He has come down at another time in Jesus, speaking through Jesus, not Moses. Jesus being fully God and yet being fully man, representing both of us and bringing our cases to court. Jesus Christ becomes that who, who he who, who represented God, represented us, carried our sin, discharged all of it on the cross for us so that the idolaters, the false, false, false worshippers, whoever we are, we can all come to God and say, by your first commandment, I shall have no other gods. I've broken it. I've broken it day by day in thought, mind, and deed. Everything I've done or said has in some way fallen short of your first commandment, God, but I come to you in the name of Jesus. I approach you in the blood of Jesus. I come to you sealed up in and carried by your son Jesus. And I know you can never reject your son. And I know you can never reject those who come to you through him. God, I cry your promises. I declare your gospel and I hold it fast. Is that you today? Are you going to be judged on the basis of how well you obey this commandment? Or are you going to be accepted in Jesus Christ, the beloved, because you repented of your sin. You repented of trying to work your way up the mountain to God, and you trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, from who you receive grace upon grace upon grace. Let's pray. Father, like the Israelites who heard your booming voice, our first inclination is to run from you is to hear the, the demands of your law and to turn and, and hightail it away from you, seeking refuge or salvation somewhere else other than, other than before the holy, burning, consuming fire, Yahweh. 
And some of us, Lord, have run. We've run to find another mountain. And we've, we've sought to run and find, find, find salvation in self-righteousness. Father God, there is religious so-called Christians in our midst this morning. They don't worship other, other gods. They don't worship, worship other religions. They don't bow down to idols. They know your commandments and your word, and they even know your gospel. But they try and relate to you on the basis of their Christian activity and their obedience. And Father God, I pray that you would, you would open their eyes in this moment to recognize and realize that is a false god that cannot save. It is able to save them as a, as a God carved out of wood. Their self-righteousness will be burned up in the presence of your holiness. Only your son, Jesus, was holy enough and good enough to lead us to you. God, please give them faith, not working, not doing, but a resting faith in Jesus Christ. Father God, there are others in our midst who, are, who have been invited today. They, they've come as guests and visitors, but they worship other gods. Maybe they belong to actual formalized religions. Maybe they, maybe they, they commit the, the great sin of, of the religion of atheism and devote their lives to the blind faith of that folly. Father God, wherever they stand today, they can be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you from the ends of the earth, you cry out. That, that, that anybody can come to you, Father God, I pray it is true of them. Those who worship other gods in name or in concept, would you bring them to your throne? Would you bring them to your cross and let them see their sin punished and their soul saved? Father God, for those of us who are, who are Christians united to your son, who are, who are people baptized and in your church, for those people who, who are your children and living in your kingdom, I pray, Lord God, that you would sanctify your name in our own heart that you would help us to, to, to be zealous to push away other competing spectacles, other things that tempt our heart away, other things that, that lure us away from giving true worship to you alone. I pray that you would make us more and more holy, more and more empowered to obey this commandment as you have promised to do so in your spirit. Father God, we pray that you would glorify Jesus Christ in our midst, that you would, you would make him see, be seen as glorious, Savior and Lord of all. Father God, we ask for his glory above all else. And in his name, everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.